This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's another day of Naughty Week here at Connecticut Public. All this week, we've been diving into all things nautical, and here at where we live, we're exploring marine wildlife, long Long Island Sound, from tenacious terrapin to the super sturgeon. A note to our listeners that you can find all of where we live's Naughty Week content on ctpublic.org slash Naughty Week. That's N-A-U-T-I week. Today, we're focusing on one of Earth's oldest marine creatures. Jellyfish, or simply jellies, have been around for more than 500 million years. That means jellies were here before dinosaurs. This resilient species has a simple but astounding makeup. Jellies do not have a brain or a heart. They have a single mouth for eating and expelling waste. This species has thrived throughout history and is continuing to thrive under a changing climate. And today we will learn about the species of jellies we have along our coastline here in Connecticut. And of course, we'll talk about what to do if you do come across one of these ethereal creatures. Joining us now is Rachel Stein. She's the Associate Director of Animal Husbandry with the Maritime Aquarium, and David Cochran, who's the Director of Fish and Invertebrates from the Mystic Aquarium. Thank you, Rachel and David, for joining us this morning. Good to be here. Thank you. And for our listeners, you can join the conversation and let us know if you have any questions about these jellies, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Rachel, I want to start with you. How did you get interested in jellies, and how did you end up working with them? Well, I kind of uh, got into jellies a little bit by chance. Um, When I started working here at the Maritime Aquarium, I was placed um, in charge of a jelly lab, um, and it wasn't really doing much at the time, but I was giving a lot of flexibility to play around with it and um, eventually was able to get them to start reproducing enough to maintain a substantial population. Um, so uh, my facility was very nice and let me continue to work and expand to the point where I was able to open a gallery and an expanded jelly culture lab um, and create a whole jelly department. And throughout that time, I really fell in love with these animals because of their amazing biology and life cycle and just how beautiful they look. I just love the fact that a jelly program exists. Like that just sounds really cool to be a part of. And uh, you know, you mentioned your fascination with them. So, what is it about jellies that that fascinate you continuously? And can you talk about you know where does our fascination with jellies come from? Well, one thing that people really struggle with is the concept that they're animals. They just don't look anything like an animal that anyone has ever seen. They don't have, as you mentioned, an eyes or a mouth. They don't breathe. Um, they really look kind of like a little blob floating through the water and people associate them more as plants, but they are animals. They're carnivorous. They eat zooplankton, which are the plankton that are part of the animal kingdom. They just have this beautiful look, the way they pulse through the water with colors and trailing tentacles. And they have a really crazy life cycle um, that involves two very separate forms of life. So the jelly medusa stage, which is what we think of when we think of a jellyfish, and then a little polyp stage, which is more like a little tiny anemone. One well, also really love your scientific description of a blob, sort of blobbing <laughs> through water. That's perfect. And can you tell us about the jellyfish uh, breeding center? You know, what does your work look like at the Maritime Aquarium? Uh, Well, jellies are only really available seasonally. If you want to have a tank full of jellies at an aquarium year round, it's good to have a source um, where you can make sure that you can always fill your tanks because jellies don't live very long. Many of them live about a year, some of them less, some of them more. 
Um, so uh, in order to make sure that our tanks stay stocked, even in the winter when you can't find jellies out in the sound, we have a lab where we keep polyps. And um, polyps, as I mentioned, are kind of an alternate life cycle of a jelly. You can maybe think of that as where the jelly life cycle starts, although, you know, you could think of any portion as where it starts. Um, and polyps, uh, they're tiny. They're like the size of your fingernail. They have tentacles like the adult jelly. They are also carnivorous and they also eat zooplankton. But when they reproduce, um, they produce uh, like a stack, almost like a stack of things like in a can of Pringles, of little tiny ephyra, which look like stars that start pulsing and eventually will break off of the polyp and swim away to grow up to become an adult medusa. And in the jelly lab, we keep uh, these colonies of polyps that we can then manipulate to undergo strobilation when we think we might need more jellies. And then we can harvest those ephyra and grow them out and keep them in tanks until they're ready to go on display. And so, uh, well, I want to mention too, you're the second person to use uh, a potato chip as a uh, as a uh, description for for marine life. So I think I'm going to have to look into that later. Um, but so it's the Jellyfish Breeding Center. Can you kind of tell us, you know, how do you literally get them to breed? Well, when an adult jelly breeds, uh, they reproduce uh, sexually using sperms and eggs. The males will release the sperm in the water, and the female will take it up and um, fertilize the eggs internally, and many uh, jellies will then brood their eggs in their oral arms until they're ready to hatch out. Um, and then what hatches out is called a planula larvae. Um, so when uh, the larvae hatches out, it swims down to a hard surface, and it will then transform into that polyp that I mentioned earlier. So in order to get uh, jellyfish polyps here at the aquarium, there's a couple things we can do. We can either harvest them from wild jellies, and uh, we have had a lot of success with a local species called the lion's mane jelly. They brood their eggs very readily. Um, and then we can uh, get those larvae to settle here in tanks where we can manipulate them as needed. Or we can trade with other facilities because um, aquariums love to trade with each other. In fact, jellyfish aquarists will often say uh, they build up their jelly karma by making sure that they're sending out as many jellies as other facilities need. You know, if somebody might need something for, if you might need something in the future, it's good to have that good karma built up. Um, or sometimes you can get your jellies to reproduce um, at your own facility. You can even use artificial insemination and kind of extract the gonads and get polyps that way. That's the perfect description there. Um, and how long have jellies been around? You know, we talked about how they've been here for millions and millions and millions of years. Um, and apparently they've been around before humans. Yeah, uh, I know that an article just came out about a jelly fossil that was found in the Burgess Shale um, that is over 500 million years old. So they're an incredibly ancient animal. Um, and uh, they've had this body design that has worked out extremely well for them. We see a lot of fossils that look pretty similar to jellies that we found today, which is an indicator that whatever their survival strategy was back 500 million years ago um, is still um, very successful to them this day and age. That is like a whole different level of consistency, I feel like. And I mean, how is it that they've been around and thrived on Earth for so long, considering the very dramatic changes that Earth has gone through and still going through? Well, jellies are highly adaptable. They're able to survive in a lot of conditions when other animals aren't. Uh, they can survive in very low oxygen. They can survive in changing temperatures. Um, they can survive periods of little, of uh, uh, not a lot of food. Um, and they're also able to eat a lot of um organisms that many other fish wouldn't eat. So um, they're just really highly adaptable. And of course, those polyps allow them to reproduce at an extremely high rate. 
Um, the polyps are able to go dormant as cysts when conditions are poor. So if uh, if the water gets too warm, they can become a cyst and then hatch out later. Um, so all of those things contribute to them just being really successful when other animals might not be. And David, I want to bring you into the conversation too. Can you respond to what we've heard from Rachel about jellies' uh, resilience and their ability to thrive? Yeah, I mean, uh, you've got Rachel on on the program who's definitely the right person to be uh, speaking on all of these. Um, but yeah, the the jelly's ability to um, occupy almost pretty much every ecological niche has really contributed to the fact that it's it's able to you know survive a lot of changes and um, and thrive you know even to this day in, in basically the same form as when they were first around. And we kind of talked about jellies are not necessarily the number one food for a lot of uh, animals, but there are animals who eat them. Can you tell us some of them? Sure. I mean, um, probably the the one of the primary ones that most people would recognize are sea turtles. Um, there are a lot of different species that um, eat uh, will eat jellies as part of their natural diet. Um, and one that um, some may not know is that there are there are jellies out there that are known as they're known as medusivores, and they they will consume other jellies as as part of their natural diet as well. And uh, you know, we talked about Rachel's interest in in jellies. I want to ask you too. You know, how did you get into the jelly world, and what your work uh, looks like at the Mystic Aquarium? Sure. Um, well, I so I grew up in the Midwest where there is no ocean, and early on in my career, um, I had a I had a strong interest in in marine animal husbandry, um, and getting into jellies was just kind of a natural part of that. Um, I got to work at a couple of facilities doing hands-on work with various species of jellies, and um, it just kind of uh, blossomed from there. Um, as far as our work here at Mystic Aquarium, um, it's we have uh, we have a, a little a gallery where we showcase various species from around the world, um, including a few species that are found in Long Island Sound, um, and we we have a similar, you know, Ra Rachel was talking about um, jelly jelly breeding and um, and the aquarium fields jelly karma and all of that um we're we're not completely different from that we are um we culture a couple of different species um not as extensive as what rachel's program is but we're working on on expanding that as well and so we've been calling them jellies and growing up i think many of us knew the jellies as jellyfish but they're now really just called jellies. so what exactly is a jelly if it's not a fish? <laughs> <laughs> so jellies are very closely related to um, anemones and corals. Um, so they're in that same family. Um, they're, you know, they, it, it's hard to imagine, um, but kind of as you, as y'all were talking about earlier, you know, there's no, there's no brain, there's no heart, there's no blood. Um, they're uh, a blob essentially, but they are, you know, they are a living animal. Um, and the, the term jellyfish, you know, it was, it's a, it's kind of like a convenient term, um, for, 
when everything everything was getting named and everything in the ocean was some sort of fish um and really you know a jellyfish isn't you know necessarily an, an incorrect term for them but um you know jellies or sea jellies um that kind of a thing those it's a little more appropriate because it doesn't drop the connotation of them being a a fish all right, we'll slowly and, and but surely change our vocabulary <laughs> to sea jellies because that also sounds really adorable. <laughs> and, you know, both of you have talked about the anatomy of jelly, and it's, it's, I think it's going to perpetually blow on my mind that there's, they have no eyes, no brain, no, no heart. But, uh, Rachel, can you tell us about their life cycle? You know, what does that look like? Because you mentioned that they don't live very long. Yeah, um, they don't have a brain or eyes or heart, um, but they do have some things that are kind of similar. For example, um, instead of a brain, they have a neural net, which is like a cluster of nerves that helps them coordinate their pulsation um, so that they can, you know, move in a coordinated manner through the water. Um, and they don't have um, eyes, but they have ropalia, which are light sensing organs around the outside of their bell. And actually, um, box jellies have been shown to have what basically is a true eye um, that is located around the, the edge of those four corners of its box-shaped bell that allow it to kind of see and even navigate obstacles. So um, they are able to kind of function using using those tools. But um, yeah, their, their life cycle is pretty short because um, the Medusa stage that you see in the summer is really just the stage that is there for reproduction. Um, after a polyp strobilates increases a phyra, they grow as quickly as possible by voraciously consuming as much plankton as they can um, to reach large sizes. And then they reproduce, they release their gametes, and then they pass away. And um, usually what you see is uh, large blooms of jelly during the summertime when food is abundant. And then after summertime, they might die off um, as the food disappears. There are some jellies that have been shown to be able to overwinter in um, colder, deeper waters, but um, typically that's their life cycle. And of course, at an aquarium where you're able to manipulate things like the temperature and keep them well fed all throughout the year, um, we'll see our jellies um, live much longer than you might see them live in the wild. And David, I believe we have two different jellies that are native to this area. Can you talk about them and describe them for us? Certainly. Um, there are there are a few um, jellies that are are, you know, readily found in the Long Island Sound area. Um, we here at Mystic Aquarium, um, on, on like the Southeast side of the, the state, we typically see, um, what, what are called, um, Atlantic nettles or Atlantic Bay nettles, depending on the species that we're finding. Um, and they're, you know, they're kind of a, a, a clear jelly, um, with really long tentacles, um, and they're, usually found you know along the coast and things like that um and then down here around the mystic river um we can find um what are called tinafores or comb jellies um which aren't necessarily a true jelly but um they are pretty fascinating they are kind of um smaller and egg-shaped and um they're little they have very short tentacles all around their body and they um as those um kind of like uh, vibrate to help them move through the water. Um, it actually causes kind of like a uh, like a string of lights effect that you can you can see on them. 
I'm really amazed by nature right now. So I'm <laughs> just having a moment. And we have a lot of water fans in, in the state, especially especially in the summer. We have a lot of people you know, liking to go out into the water. Do people need to be concerned whether or not they have a, a severe sting or no? Typically, no. Um, there are... Some of it is how the individual would react to um, making contact with the tentacles. Um, that's where all the stinging cells are. Um, I think a lot of them, um, save for the the lion's mane, would have a pretty um, would have a minimal effect. But um, you know, in general, if if folks are seeing um, jellies around, um, it's you know, best to err on the side of caution, let them have their space. Um, they will eventually, you know, swim away. They're they're a little bit slow, but um, they're also quite fragile. So um, being, you know, 95 plus percent water, um, it doesn't take much contact for them to, to be injured or anything like that. And certainly, um, you know, it's best just to kind of um, let them do their thing and uh, let them move along. And so I feel like there's a lot of uh, different movement both above and below the waters. And what research are you seeing right now happening around the sound and the jelly population? I am not as familiar with that. I would defer to Rachel on that. Rachel, you want to jump in? Sure. Um, so uh, there's always been ongoing studies about the effects of climate change on jellies. Um, I think uh, we've definitely been able to see that we have increasing numbers of jelly blooms. Um, one thing that hasn't been so clear is what exactly is causing those jelly booms, blooms. And I think there's been a couple of factors that have come to light. One is definitely climate change. Um, and that can be for a couple different reasons. Um, as I mentioned earlier, jellies are able to survive in conditions where other fish can't. Um, and jellies and fish tend to be in kind of like a balance in the food web where there are a bunch of fish that will eat jellies and jellies eat kind of smaller plankton. Um, and as conditions shift to be unfavorable for fish and predators of jellies, the jellies are able to grow unchecked. And not only that, but then they'll start to consume um, the larvae of the animals that would eventually become their predators, um, almost creating a negative feedback loop. Um, and there's also uh, seasonable changes, um, things like uh, different conditions that allow different types of plankton to grow in the winter can contribute to uh, what kind of animals that are able to eat them later in the summer, including jellyfish. Sometimes that shifts towards foods that are more favorable, favorable to jellies, sometimes foods that are more favorable to fish. And then there's uh, things like uh, storms and uh, uh, currents. The Gulf Stream will bring a lot of jellies up this way that you might not normally see this way, like a uh, Portuguese man of war I know has been found on beaches of Long Island, New Jersey, Rhode Island. Um, so the, the, the research that I've seen is kind of focusing on what of those factors could be contributing to jelly blooms, um, what uh, we're likely to see in the future, some people have even been able to come up with uh, kind of a jelly bloom predictor for each area based on those conditions. 
And we will be talking more about the Portuguese man of war in a little bit. Currently, we're talking with Rachel Stein, who's the Associate Director of Animal Husbandry with Maritime Aquarium, and David Cochran, who's the Director of Fish and Invertebrates from the Mystic Aquarium. They'll be staying with us as we continue to learn more about jellies. You can find all of our Where We Live Naughty Week content on ctpublic.org slash Naughty Week. Got a question about jellies? Or maybe you or someone you know has been stung by one? Let us know. Join the conversation 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Even without eyes, a heart, a brain, or any sort of nervous system, jellies have been around for millions of years and will likely be here long after we're gone. There are only a handful of species that prey on jellies, and jelly blooms can be a real problem, impacting different species around the sound and even impacting the seafood industry. Back with us to talk about all of that is Rachel Stein with the Maritime Aquarium and David Cochran with the Mystic Aquarium. And a quick note for our listeners that let us know if you have any questions about jellies. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And David, I want to start with you. Um, We've been talking about the jelly population, and it's been increasing around Long Island Sound. What does that mean to the ecosystem around there and the community around the Sound and the coastal areas? Sure. Well, I think, you know, anytime you have kind of an imbalance in populations in an ecosystem, it can can have kind of like a a top-down effect. Um, You know, Rachel mentioned... Um, jellies eating kind of eating the larval fish um, and also consuming plankton, which is um, a very important food source for um, for growing uh, for the, these growing larval fish and other um, other growing animals. And when you have kind of an overabundance of these animals that can um, that can take away kind of the the bottom food source of of the ecosystem um it can it can contribute to a bit of a collapse you know and and certainly too if they are outnumbering predators 
um, that would normally consume them or keep that population in check. Um, it can certainly have, you know, drastic effects on the, the balance of the ecosystem. You can have um, fish population reduction, which also reduces the, the predator population because they'll go where the, where the food is. Um, and that's really when, when you, what you can find with any um, sort of overabundance of, of any one component of, uh, of a larger ecosystem is that it, it can kind of pull the rug out from under it. And Rachel, earlier we talked about a jelly blooms. Can you tell us exactly what that means? Yeah, jelly bloom, um, sometimes called a smack of jellies, is when you just have a lot of jellies that congregate in one area. Um, and sometimes this can be because of an overabundance of the population. A lot of times this is just due to weather and current uh, conditions that cause the jellies to congregate. Um, and they can become very, very thick. Sometimes it can seem like there are more jellies than water, like you're just looking at a sea of jellies, and they can stretch for miles and miles and miles. And I imagine that would have some sort of impact in or for their surroundings. You know, what kind of impact would that would that have? Uh, they can com- they would consume pretty much any plankton in the area that they are in. Um, and there have been some instances in the past where this can have a negative um, impact on people. Uh, If a jelly bloom happens to get into, for example, a sea pen that's harvesting or housing uh, small fish, it can kill all of those fish. If a jelly bloom happens to be near a nuclear power plant intake um, or a cooling tower, they can clog those intakes and cause the power plant to shut down. Uh, They can clog the uh, nets and fishing gear for fishing fishermen and cause significant damage. And of course, uh, if you're at the beach and there's a jelly bloom and they wash up on shore, they can cause a lot of stinging problems. And I know uh, David earlier mentioned that you know sea turtles are are one of the few that prey on them. Are there other animals that prey on them and put them at risk? Um, there actually are a lot of animals that will prey on them, but nothing so significant that it would really influence their population. Um, I know there was a study several years ago that was able to show that pretty much any animal eats jellies in some amounts, but usually only when other food sources are scarce and they're kind of forced to. And even then, when they eat the jellies, they tend to only eat the most nutritious part of the jellies, like the gonads and the oral arms, leaving the rest of the jelly intact. Um, uh, Sea turtles and like the ocean sunfish, they can eat large, large quantities of jellies, but um, I don't think that this would really impact the population in the ocean. And I know you mentioned earlier, too, about climate change and how it impacts you know, the ecosystem, but it sounds like this species is actually thriving during climate change and, and growing. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, uh, when they when some of those predators die off, it gives the jellies more of a chance to kind of grow unchecked. Um, and not only that, but a lot of animals um, will grow faster in warmer conditions. It speeds up their metabolism. So um, you might see that in warmer climates, the jellies reproduce more readily and they grow to large sizes faster than they would in colder climates. And David, are you hearing about what that means for people that are using the coast for a lot of recreational activities. You know, we were talking earlier that now, especially with the warmer warmer temperatures, both in the water and I guess for weather too, you know, people are swimming, people are at the beach. Are you seeing these jellies coming more inland as well? Um, I haven't, but I 
I can speak to some some anecdotes that uh, of one aspect of the use of the coastline and the sound, and that's in the fishing. Um, what I I don't know that it's due to necessarily to jellies, but certainly with the climate changing and things like that, a lot of recreational uh, recreational fishing uh, fish um, are starting to be seen in in a lot fewer numbers than they have even in the last like two years. Um, so certainly, we know there's we know there are are things changing in the in the ecosystem of the sound. And Rachel, are you seeing the same thing with what David just said about the fishing? Um, David would probably be able to speak to that uh, more than me. Um, I know that we definitely have visitors who come in seasonally um, and will say, oh, my gosh, there's all of these jellies all over the beach. What are they? Um, and I it's hard to tell if, you know, we're seeing more of that in certain years than others. It's definitely something that we see of a lot in the summer um, and possibly like more frequently as time goes on. And I want to go back to sort of the food portion just real quick. And Rachel, you know, because we mentioned uh, they're not very preyed upon. But, you know, people also eat the jellies, right? I, I think I read somewhere that um, Australian researchers have described them as a perfect food. Um, and this is not anything new either. No, um, jellies have definitely been consumed as as food. Uh, you can find I've, I've heard that you can find seaweed salads that have uh, jellies in them. And uh, there's definitely a large um, industry for harvesting jellyfish as food. Um, I think there's a big company down south in Georgia that does that. I think that there's more, um, and globally, there's like more than 900 million pounds or so harvested each year. It's not something that's typically eaten here in the U.S. I think it's more common um, like in Asia. But it's something that a lot of people have been pushing is like one cure of a way to get rid of jellies in the ocean is to eat them all, which uh, is a good thought. But I don't think a most of the jellies in the ocean aren't edible. Um, I think there's only like 11 species that that can be eaten and and B, um, I think it's pretty difficult to process them. So um, some processing uses um, alum salts, which add tons and tons of sodium, which makes it not so good for you. But they do have a lot of protein. Um, so when when processed properly, they could be a very good nutritional supplement. Well, the idea of eating them all as a solution, I'm still grappling with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, well, and I want to ask both of you, we only have a couple minutes here left, but um, we'll start with you, uh, David. Obviously, you went into this because it's interesting and jellies are so unique as from this conversation, we can tell. But have you experienced any like fun facts or just things that shocked you or surprised you as you as you study these jellies? Um, yeah, I think... Uh, certainly when I was, um, when I was a younger aquarist, one of my kind of like moments of, of being surprised was when I started, um, working with what are called upside down jellies, the Cassiopeia species that can be found a lot of different warm water places, um, primarily down in, in this country, primarily down in Florida. Um, and that is they... Uh, they have a unique, um, somewhat unique feeding method in that they don't have to have um, contact with their tentacles to be able to to sting and stun their prey. They can actually release their stinging cells out in kind of like a, a mucousy net 
above them in order to capture prey and and bring it back down. Um, and the reason why they're called upside down jellies is because they they will lay on the bottom um, in an upside down fashion um, and with their tentacles sticking up. So they they don't actually move around that much in the water column. They're mainly found on on the bottom. That sounds like a video game image to me, actually. <laughs> and before we go to Rachel's fun fact, we do have a question from Michael on Facebook who wants to know if there are freshwater jellies, where to find them and what their life expectancies are. Rachel, is this something you can answer? Uh, yes, there are freshwater jellies. They are a type of hydrozoan jelly. Um, it's just a different classification of jelly. But um, they, I believe that there are some that can be found um, in our area. Um, but they're actually very widespread in general. I think they can be found on all continents and most of the, the United States. Um, I don't know much about their, uh, their lifespan, um, but they are an invasive species and they have a very, very mild sting. So I think that most people don't really notice them if they come into contact with them. David, do you have anything to add to that? I don't. Rachel put it very well. Perfect. And and Rachel, before before you all leave us, uh, what's your most surprising moment, or if you have a fun fact that you like to share with our listeners about jellies? Oh, can I share two real? Uh, quick? Yes, go for it. Okay. Uh, my first fun fact is that jellies have the fastest mechanism in the animal kingdom, and that is the stinging cell or the nematocyst, which can fire in seven hundred nanoseconds. And my second fun fact, which I love to tell kids, is that because jellies only have one opening in their body, all the food goes in and out of that opening. So jellies poop through their mouths. We are still grappling with that fact as well, <laughs> Rachel, not just the kids. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for sharing that with us. You've been listening to Rachel Stein, who's the Associate Director of Animal Husbandry with Maritime Aquarium, and David Cochran, who's the Director of Fish and Invertebrates from Mystic Aquarium. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And next up, we're asking the age-old question, what to do if you are stung by a jelly and get updates on lifeguarding in our state. Have you seen any jellies on the coast of Connecticut? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The jelly population is growing, meaning a big impact on our ecosystem and our local beaches. And if you get stung by a jelly, chances are it's going to hurt. I got stung. I couldn't stand. I, I couldn't walk. We were two miles from the house. <laughs> we 
scared and alone. We didn't think we could make it. And then Joey remembered something. I'd seen this thing on the Discovery Channel. Wait a minute. I saw that on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, about jellyfish and how if you... Ew! You peed on yourself? Ew! You can't say that! You, you don't know! I mean, I thought I was gonna pass out from the pain. Anyway, I, I tried, I, but I, I couldn't bend that way. So? So on that note... On that note, joining us now to talk about lifeguarding and water safety in our state is Sarah Battistini. She's the water safety coordinator with our Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. So ha-ha aside, let's talk jellies. Now, what do you actually do if you get stung by one, um, especially if they're commonly, uh, if people commonly run into them at, in the Long Island Sound? I'm guessing the answer is to not have a friend urinate on you. Uh, we would like to keep the urine out of Long Island Sound. Um, That's the PSA know, <laughs> this morning, everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, urine, lemon juice, papaya ammonia, vinegar, meat tenderizer, not scientifically proven to work on getting the sting from the nematocyst uh, that is on your skin and causing you some pain away. So how... The lifeguards at Connecticut State Park beaches are trained is that we want to remove the the tentacle from the skin. So wet sand, we'll rub it on there and try to get it off. Uh, wearing our gloves, we may even try to pick it off or use a piece of plastic like a credit card type deal um, to scrape the area. Then we will rinse it with uh, salt water because fresh water will tend to increase on the stinging and then apply a heat pack if necessary. And so uh, that is the appropriate way to take care of a jellyfish sting. We might have to ask you to repeat that, you know, throughout the next couple of <laughs> minutes just to <laughs> let people know. Um, do not follow the urban legend, everyone. Uh, so earlier we also talked about the Portuguese man of war, which I honestly, before this conversation, I never realized how intense their stings can be. And reports are saying that uh, we're seeing more of those jellies off the coast of Rhode Island and Cape Cod. You know, how often are you seeing um, jelly stings here in Connecticut? I am literally knocking on wood right now. The Portuguese man of war have not made it into Long Island Sound, at least on our state park beaches. Uh, so if you, but they are very close, like you mentioned in Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island, as well as uh, Connecticut State Parks, we are USLA associated beaches. Uh, we do have a warning flag system. So if you are in Rhode Island recreating there and you see a purple flag, that is the indicator that marine, and I'm sure the aquarium people will not like this term, marine pests uh, are existing in the swimming areas. And uh, we talked earlier too about avoiding them as much as possible. But what, you know, what should swimmers and beachgoers look out for? You know, how can we, or any guidance on how to avoid the jellies without the, I mean, besides the obvious, you know, stay away from them. So you're going to want to look for the flags because part of uh, the lifeguards will know if the jellyfish are in the water because we do have to do an aspect of physical training for our job. We go out and we swim uh, in the swim areas. And unfortunately we do end up swimming through 
the jellyfish that are existing there. Um, we did used to use the vinegar erroneously in the past and the lifeguards come out smelling like salad dressing, but uh, after a swim, but now we've moved on to, to the more correct method of wet sand to scrape off the stinging nettles. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something you want to smell of at the beach somehow. I'm thinking. <laughs> No, the smell of sunblock is way better than vinegar. There you go. And um, and you mentioned lifeguard. And it sounds like they're doing a lot of work on, along the coast. And and I want to pivot to that real quick. You know, you've been with Deep working as a water safety uh, coordinator for 15 years. You know, how many lifeguards are employed across the state at public beaches? Are you seeing a shortage? Have you seen any changes? You know, can you tell us about that? Uh, so uh all of us in the aquatic industry are fighting a national lifeguard sh- shortage. Uh, for Connecticut State Parks, we uh, have put some mechanisms in place to help us get really close to filling all of our 110 base lifeguard positions that we have available. We're at 99, uh, which is awesome. We have increased pay. We've gone ahead and provided all of the training that's required to be an open water lifeguard uh, is paid for its paid training. So these are the incentives that that we've gone to to increase the interest and fill all of our open lifeguarding numbers. And I mean, that sounds like a lot of investment in place. You know, why is that so important? It is a lot of investment, uh, definitely. Uh, Lifeguarding is a layer of protection for swimmers at uh, our outdoor recreation facilities that uh, our management, the governor supports it. We want to provide that extra layer of protection in certain locations where we can. Um, And as far as being a lifeguard, it's a really great summer job. Uh, You get qualities such as responsibility, leadership, teamwork, communication. You really get to hone those skills, which are applicable to any type of profession that you would want to go to uh, further on in life. Because unfortunately for us in the Northeast, uh, year-round lifeguarding positions in open water settings are not really possible. And I think even just based on this, with this conversation, um, there's more to lifeguarding than just, you know, um, being at the ocean and, you know, uh, checking on swimmers, you know, you're talking about jelly stings, as we were just mentioning. So you have to go through some really rigorous training to become a lifeguard. And assuming there's so much education behind that, too. Can you tell us about what these tryouts look like? Absolutely. So uh, to be uh, a Connecticut State Park open water lifeguard, we have certain uh, minimum requirements that we need to be able to see if the person can successfully do those is an indicator that they will be able to uh, pass all of the additional 80 hours of training uh, that we give them in order to successfully guard at at our beach locations, which are open water. You have to be able to run uh, short distances quickly, long distances. We have a 10 minute mile. You have to be a very strong swimmer. You have to be able to do a 25 uh, yard sprint in 45 seconds or less, you have to be able to do a distance swim 550 yards in 10 minutes or less. Uh, you have to be able to carry somebody that's 165 pounds, at least 25 yards. You have to be able to retrieve a person of the same weight from a depth of 10 feet uh, in the water. So it's a lot. It is definitely a lot, but that's what makes us stand out 
as lifeguards. And honestly, it's what we need in a lifeguard at the types of facilities that we have, especially on Long Island Sound, where we have the unconfined, um, essentially, swim areas uh, with ranging water depths when the tide comes in. And you know, we were talking about jelly stings earlier. I want to also talk about you know swim competency and swim safety at the beach. Now, can you talk a little bit about what beachgoers should know about staying safe on the beach? Absolutely. So, we have twenty three designated swimming locations at the Connecticut State Parks across the state. So. While you can swim anywhere where there's water at a Connecticut State Park, unless we've signed it, do not swim. Um, we do recommend that people go to the designated swimming areas. There's uh, safety precautions in place, such as water testing. We've defined areas that are, are safe for our inland parks. We put swim lines out to a maximum depth of five feet. At our shoreline parks, we've put in regulatory markers, which Boats and vessels are supposed to stay 100 feet off the backside of those so that they're not coming into the swim area, um, as well as water quality testing. And then at eight of those locations, we have lifeguards. Um, and then basic, anytime you go swimming anywhere, please, please, people, watch your children. Be within arm's reach of them if they are in or near the water. Um, do not drink and swim just like alcohol impairs your judgment and coordination for driving. It also does for swimming. Um, so those are the main two message safety messages I would like to get out. And if you can take a swim lesson. And do not forget to not urinate on yourself or on a friend if you get a jelly sting. Am I right? <laughs> We definitely don't recommend that. Okay. I just want to make sure we get that out there because, and, you know, and it's really difficult to have these nautical related conversations without talking about climate change. And this year with all the extreme heat and flooding and air quality alerts and thunderstorms, you know, how is extreme weather impacting safety on the shore? This has been an interesting year uh, for us as lifeguards with the uh, amount of flooding and uh, debris, some swift weather incidents at um, at our the Connecticut River, the Housatonic. So these type of environmental conditions have not really are are new to this season. Um, and yeah, we just want people to be aware of their surroundings, especially when you're recreating outdoors. And if be cautious of any signs that entities have put in place on their properties, warning of dangerous situations. And you also mentioned water quality alerts. Are you getting an uptick in those as well? Yes, it seems like we've been having um, additional water quality fails at our beaches this year as compared to, to the immediate prior years. Uh, we test weekly for E. coli as an indicator bacteria of overall water quality. Um, so yeah, we have had to shut down a number of beaches. We've had some pretty heavy rainstorms and that does negatively affect um, the water quality test because of the amount of runoff that ends up in our swimming areas with those heavy rainfalls. And is there a way for, for people to check on that before they head out to the beach just to be on the safe side? Absolutely. We maintain um, on our website a listing of the status of all of our 23 designated swimming areas, uh, whether they're open 
if they have the lifeguard coverage and what the if the current water quality is good or not. And real quickly, too, because there's been such extreme heat uh, temperatures lately, you know, how big of a problem is this on a beach? Are you seeing that as a as an issue? Yes, it is definitely an issue. Please. Another PSA. <laughs> We're here for them. People drink water. <laughs> if you're coming to the breathe beach, bring some water, bring uh, some electrolytes in your water uh, would be uh, even better. Hydration. Hydration is the other very important point this morning for everyone. And sadly, the end of summer season is unfortunately rapidly uh, coming to an end. You know, if we have any listeners that are interested in lifeguarding next year, though, is there a place where they can learn more about that? Absolutely. So they can uh, go to the ct.gov page. We also have an Instagram account and Facebook, CT State Park Lifeguards. Uh, and that's, uh, that is the best place to find out what we do. And, and if people are interested, they can DM us. And thank you so much for joining us this morning and giving us all those PSAs, Sarah. And we really <laughs> appreciate it. And we hope people hear them and maybe we'll list them and uh, people can check them out on our website. And thanks. So thanks again, Sarah uh, Badestini, who is the Water Safety Coordinator for the State of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thanks for being with us this morning, Sarah. You're welcome. Pros hydrate. And along with those PSAs, you can find more information on our website on the jellies, dive into all the nautical theme stories airing this week on Connecticut Public's original talk shows by visiting ctpublic.org slash naughtyweek. And make sure to check out ctpublic.org slash where we live to see all of our Naughty Week content in one place. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>